This is the American Association of Orthodontists, The Business of Orthodontics Podcast, Episode 1. Welcome. I'm Pam Paladin with Kevin Dillard, the General Counsel for the American Association of Orthodontists. This inaugural episode is addressing two timely topics that can affect AAO members' practice of the orthodontic specialty. The topics are the Supreme Court ruling on a case involving the North Carolina Dental Board and a bill before Congress that would raise the annual cap on flexible spending accounts. First up, the Supreme Court ruling and Kevin Dillard. Kevin, welcome. Thank you, Pam. Uh, Kevin, tell us, please, the name of the case and uh, when the Supreme Court's decision was announced. Sure. Well, the name of the case is North Carolina State Board of Dental Examiners versus the Federal Trade Commission. The arguments were heard before the Supreme Court in October of 2014, and the decision was announced on February the 25th of this year. How did the lawsuit come about? Well, it goes back several years. Uh, Probably seven or eight years ago, the Dental Board of North Carolina started sending out cease and desist letters to various non-dentists performing teeth whitening. Anecdotally, some of these non-dentists were uh, putting up shop in tanning salons and uh, primarily malls and were offering teeth whitening services to the public outside of uh, a dental professional's office. And these were not dentists who were performing these the services? These were not dentists performing the services, and that is what caused the problem. So a number of dentists in North Carolina complained to the, to the state board saying that there was an active dentistry happening that was not being performed by dental professionals. So the dental, prof- the dental board looked into this issue and decided that, uh, in fact, dentistry was being performed without a license in the state, and they sent these cease and desist letters to them. The Federal Trade Commission stepped in after hearing complaints from the non-dental professionals to look at it from a potentially uh, antitrust perspective against the dental board. Was the dental board acting correctly and not in an anti-competitive way that would be protected by state law and federal law? It would seem that states have the ability to regulate the professions within their own borders, whether it's dentistry or medicine or law or or any of the other professions. Does that ability still exist in spite of the Supreme Court ruling? It does, Pam, and you're right to point out the fact that states do have the ability to regulate any number of professions in their own state. Routinely, in every single state, there's a state board of dentistry, of pharmacy, of medicine, of law, any, even of massage therapists, going down the line, any licensed professional, the state can set up a board to regulate that practice within the state. There is a doctrine that goes back to 1943 in a Supreme Court decision called Parker versus Brown that set up what is called the state action doctrine, which means that a state can promulgate rules that are by their very nature anti-competitive, obviously. A dental board of the state of Missouri, for instance, can set up a law that says only licensed dentists can practice dentistry. So by its very nature, state dental boards and state boards of pharmacy and so on act in an anti-competitive way. Recognizing that and recognizing that there needs to be a respect of the federal government to state law, this Parker versus Brown decision set up what's called that state action doctrine, saying that if the states act appropriately, they won't face antitrust lawsuits or have antitrust liability. So the appropriate action is the key to this? The appropriate action is a key, and that is what the decision was based on. So the decision was six to three in favor of the FTC. And I think a lot of folks may get the wrong idea about what the implications of this case are. The state action doctrine, so the majority decided, did not apply to North Carolina in this case. And the reason that it did not apply to North Carolina in this case was twofold. 
One, which is sort of the secondary reason, is that teeth whitening was never defined in state statutes as being the practice of dentistry. Two, the state board, the way it was set up, had several commissioners, only two of which were not licensed dentists elected by dentists. So all of the commissioners were elected by dentists. They were dentists. There was one hygienist elected by other dental hygienists and then one member appointed by the, the governor. So what that did was create a situation. And by the way, there was no other apparent state oversight of that dental board. What does that mean? It means that the governor did not have the ability apparently to remove commissioners. It didn't have the ability to appoint additional commissioners. It also didn't have the ability to question the regulations that are being promulgated or ask for additional clarification or even put stays on them. Basically, the Supreme Court said that the state action doctrine does not apply to the North Carolina State Dental Board because they were basically private actors that were promulgating rules to limit the market in which they themselves practice without any government oversight or without appropriate government oversight. So that's why the uh, the Supreme Court then, you think, ruled in favor of the FTC? I do. And interestingly enough, the Supreme Court rarely ever answers a question that is not directly presented to it. And so the question that you might be wondering and that most orthodontists might be wondering is, well, what kind of oversight would the state government have to have over the state dental board? And the Supreme Court didn't directly answer that. They said, well, that's, that's not a question that's being presented to us, but so, so therefore we're not going to answer it. So the minority in this case, which was authored by Justice Alito and joined by Scalia and Thomas, who are three of what many would consider the most conservative justices of the Supreme Court, said, you know, this is all nonsense. The state, the state action doctrine says basically that states can set up a regulatory situation however they want. That's the whole point of the federal-state dichotomy. And North Carolina had not ceded any power to the North Carolina State Dental Board that it didn't already know about. And the, the Alito and, and Thomas and Scalia said, if North Carolina is fine setting up a dental board that way, that is perfectly fine. They set up the dental board that way. It is by virtue of the fact that the government set it up that way and is approving of the way it moves forward means that the state action doctrine does apply to the dental board there. Let's look into the future, Kevin. What mm -hmm. do you expect will be the impact on dentistry from the Supreme Court ruling? You know, Pam, I think the most significant impact on dentistry is going to be any time the Supreme Court makes a decision like this uh, regarding professional licensure, it, it's, it's a slow-moving boat. It's not something that's going to change a lot overnight. The most significant impact is going to be likely that states, not just North Carolina, but every other state, is going to likely examine how their licensing boards are put together to make sure that there is appropriate government oversight, not only to, to state boards of dentistry, but this applies to every state licensing board. Even to medicine, medicine all the other ones that you mentioned earlier. Optometry, dentistry, uh, pharmaceutical stuff, anything that, that a state exercises its power to regulate professionals, this applies to. So in every single state, in every single one of those dental boards, the states need to make sure that there is an appropriate government oversight. Now, it makes it a little difficult that the Supreme Court didn't answer the question, what exactly is appropriate government oversight? As it applies to dentistry, I think it applies directly to the North Carolina state dentists and orthodontists, obviously, probably the most directly, because I think the teeth whitening thing now is, is going to be in the purview of non-licensed professionals unless the legislature comes back and answers and says, 
we are restricting teeth whitening to only that of dental professionals. In, in other states, I think that it doesn't absolutely does not mean, I think it's important to note that this decision does not mean that every single state dental board is powerless. As a matter of fact, I, you know, I don't think anybody has done a survey of all state dental boards to see how they're set up and how they would meet the requirements scantily put by the Supreme Court. But I believe that most state dental boards are probably operating in such a way that they would be free from this kind of scrutiny and that their regulations that have been promulgated are perfectly fine. As it relates to North Carolina, I assume that they're going to take some remedial action and make sure that there is more than uh, the scant, so they said, oversight to, to make sure that, that regulations going forward are also uh, protected as state action doctrine and, and, are, and are valid. Could this also affect tooth whitening toothpaste? Is that, is that taking it a little too far? It is, Pam. Again, going back to the secondary reason, it was that the legislature never defined teeth whitening as a practice of dentistry. Mm-hmm. But there's a second layer of this, too. And that's that the state dental board did not try to eliminate all teeth whitening done in the state other than that by dental professionals. It just said that only dental professionals can apply it to other people. So, for instance, Crest White Strips or other available commercial products like that are perfectly fine and legal in the state of North Carolina as they are anywhere else because they have been, it's been approved by the FDA to be safe on humans and, and the appropriate doses and, and anybody anywhere can go into a grocery store and buy those Crest White Strips. The problem comes in where the tanning salons or the uh, the uh, hygienists in the state of North Carolina or non-licensed dentists apply peroxide or other whitening materials to humans. Let's go back to to state boards in general. Is is this this is not then the demise of state boards? Absolutely not. And I can tell you uh, anecdotally from calls that I have received from AO members over the last several days since this decision has been announced and made public that. I think there's a lot of hyperbole and there's a lot of maybe hand wringing that has been unnecessary happening among uh, dentists and dental boards in general. I think really what needs to be emphasized is that the impact of this is fairly limited. And I don't think that that is an opinion that's unique to me. I think if you do a survey of most Supreme Court watching blogs, you will find that they, they would agree as well that this is a fairly limited in scope kind of, of, of decision. And it mm-hmm. certainly doesn't mean, and I've heard this kind of, I've heard this term used over and over and over by dentists who call me or orthodontists who call me saying, well, this just means that there's no protection for the public, that dental boards have lost their power. And that is just absolutely not true. Although I can certainly understand the reaction to it because it is a nuanced decision in any time you hear that the Supreme Court has ruled in favor of the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, over a state dental board based on anti-competitive activity, I can certainly understand the confusion. What do you think, Kevin, is, is the, uh, the impact of this ruling for AAO members? For AAO members, I think probably the most significant impact is that, it, again, it goes back to the state board level. I think AAO members need to be active, and especially those AAO members who serve on state dental boards, and I know that there are quite a few of them. I think that it's going to cause them a little bit of fretting and a little bit of time and energy uh, invested into making sure that they are right with their own state government, that they meet the requirements of oversight that this that this case has presented to them. Kevin, thank you for summarizing the uh, Supreme Court decision, and we'll be back with more in just a minute. What makes me smile? What makes me smile? Really good music always makes me smile. Getting more followers online makes me smile. A lot of things make me smile now. I'm finally proud of my smile. 
thanks to my orthodontist. My friend told me about her orthodontist, and she sounded great. My dentist recommended one. An orthodontist is a specialist. Orthodontists have the experience, the training, the treatment options, like clear aligners, retainers, invisible braces, things I didn't even know about. My orthodontist gave me a great smile. And that makes me smile. My orthodontist makes me smile. I follow her online now. For a smile that makes you smile, visit the American Association of Orthodontists online at mylifemysmile.org. Find an AAO orthodontist near you. MyLifeMySmile.org, the American Association of Orthodontists. Hi, this is Pam Paladin with Kevin Dillard back from break. And uh, during our break, Kevin and I were uh, were discussing a little bit more on the Supreme Court decision. And uh, one more question I wanted to run by Kevin before we move on to uh, the what's going on in Congress is. Uh, is there going to be any kind of an effect on AAO members' pocketbooks from the Supreme Court ruling? Not immediately, Pam. And I think you have to maybe look through a lot of fluff that has been said about this, like we mentioned before the break, a lot of innuendo, a lot of uh, hyperbole about what this means. It doesn't certainly mean that anybody can go out and practice orthodontics now. That's just not the case. And, and if anything else you you hear from this, hear that the vast, vast, vast majority of all dental board regulations are perfectly fine, and I am confident that they would be fine going forward, even if no changes were made. Great. And that's Kevin Dillard, AAO's general counsel. Thank you very much for that summary again. And now let's go on to another topic that is timely, and it's uh, actually some good news coming from the Hill in Washington, D.C., uh, there is a new bill that's pending before Congress, just recently int- introduced to the House of Representatives, and Kevin Dillard will be explaining a little bit more about it, and and will be joined uh, in a little bit by Kevin O'Neill, who is the AAO's Legislative Counsel and partner at Squire Patton Boggs in Washington D.C. But for now, Kevin Dillard will tell us uh, about this bill, and uh, first of all, uh, what is the name of the bill and who sponsored it? And the name of the bill is the Raise Bill. It's sponsored by Representative Steve Stivers, a Republican from Ohio, and Representative Michelle Grisham, who's a Democrat from New Mexico. And from the very beginning, it was our, our goal, strong goal and desire to have this co-sponsored by a Republican and a Democrat to highlight the bipartisan nature and agreement that we believe this will have in both the House and the Senate moving forward. What is the reason the AA has been involved in this? I'll give you a little bit of the history about the flexible spending account. It's been the, the flexible spending account, or what we refer to as FSAs for short, are a tax-deductible account that employers can offer to employees. It is discretionary on the part of the employers, and that's important for later on in the discussion to, to know that. Historically, prior to the passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2009, and later implemented in this case in 2013, mm-hmm. The amount of money that employees could elect, if the employers offered the accounts, was unlimited. They could elect up to the entire amount of their salary in a tax-deferred fund to pay for medical expenses. Now, most employers capped it at $5,000. That was pretty much the industry standard across the board. Some, uh, some larger employers uh, reduced it. Some, some mid-sized employers would, would allow $7,500, just depending on the mix of employees. Okay. And what it would do is that the, the funds would typically be available to the employees on January 1st. They would elect it during the open enrollment period and say that I'm going to put forward 
put, put apart so much of my paycheck every single year to, to get up to $5,000 or whatever I want. Mm-hmm. What can those funds be used for? Those funds can be used for any medical expense that's not covered by insurance. So it could be covered, it could cover dentistry, it could cover orthodontics, it could cover buying glasses. buying glasses, mm-hmm. it could cover it could cover any number of prescription copayments, it could cover deductibles that your insurance doesn't pay for for your doctor, hospital deductibles, that kind of thing. In 2009, the Affordable Care Act was passed, of course, which is often referred to as Obamacare. Now, as a part of the funding mechanism of the Affordable Care Act, the maximum amount allowable for the flexible spending accounts was reduced from a theoretical maximum of the the employee's salary to $2,500, period. Wow. And many called it a stealth tax on people because it affects people of all different brackets. It's not scaled to any income bracket. It is just simply $2,500. Now, if you're like me, Pam, and I can speak from experience, I have, I'm a family of five, and we, we can go through $2,500 in copayments, even with good insurance, in, in a matter of months, just in copayments, uh, deductibles, prescription medications, and um, hospital visits, uh, emergency room visits mm-hmm. that are sometimes necessary when you're raising three young boys. What does that leave for orthodontic treatment at the end of the year? Well, not much because that amount has already been maxed out. But still, I think we did a survey a few years ago, Kevin, that suggested that uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of about one in four of either patient families or patients themselves were using FSA funds toward their orthodontic care. Absolutely. And this is where it affects AO members and families is that the part of those FSA funds can be used to pay for orthodontic care. And what families would do before this cap is that they would set aside $5,000 and they would, or the maximum of whatever their employer would allow when they know that one of their children, one or more of their children are getting ready to go into orthodontic therapy. So then what they would do is they would pay in that year an oversized amount, which essentially means, and it, it does actually mean that whatever amount you pay out of your flexible spending account, that is money that is cheaper by whatever your tax bracket is. So if you're paying $1,000 to your orthodontist to cover some of the treatment from a flexible spending account and your effective federal tax bracket is 25%, you're getting a benefit of $250 that is not going to the government. And if you cap the FSA at $2,500, what you're doing is reducing the overall amount that families can spend and use towards orthodontic treatment. Now, that means, again, since $2,500 can be easily blown through very quickly with a family, with young children especially, that most families maybe not are not able to put aside extra money in those accounts to pay for orthodontics. Patients who feel like they actually are going to be able to pay for their care are probably going to be more likely to reach out to an orthodontist, to an AAO member, and initiate that care. There's no question, Pam, that that is absolutely true. And the fact that the, the reduction in the flexible spending accounts that, that people are able to put aside for orthodontic treatment and other medical expenses planned or implanned has reduced the overall market. We've heard that anecdotally from our members. We've done surveys that we know that the flexible spending accounts are not as much in use now as they were before the limits were put in place, effective January 1st of 2013, over two years ago. And that compared, that, that I should say combined with the medical device tax, which also went into effect a little over two years ago, put an extra squeeze on the cost of orthodontic appliances that orthodontists are having to pay for. So the orthodontists, RAO members, are getting squeezed on both ends. Their supplies are getting more expensive, and at the same time, 
Families are not as able to come in with flexible spending accounts charged enough to be able to afford the orthodontic treatment. So we began hearing a lot of fee, and, and we knew that this would be the case. As a matter of fact, in 2009, the original proposal to, pay for, to help pay for the Affordable Care Act was to eliminate flexible spending accounts altogether. And the AO joined, we actually led a coalition and lobbied and worked with uh, then-Senator Olympia Snow from, from Maine to carve out and to keep some flexible spending accounts. So I think a good portion of the credit goes to the AO and our grassroots lobbyists and our board in crafting a strategy that allowed at least $2,500 of that flexible spending account to remain in the bill. Now we're coming back after we've heard from a lot of members that this has really hurt their business, especially the younger members, it, serving in, in more suburban areas where the younger families exist and live, and saying, whatever you can do to get those flexible spending accounts higher, please do so. And that is the genesis of this bill. Can you give us a, a kind of an overview of what the, what the bill, what the new law would sure. be? So, and I'll give you just a brief background. This, this dates back to last summer. This is how things work in Washington. It's a very slow process, but it, it is sometimes very effective. Last June, a member of a Council on Governmental Affairs, we were, we were meeting in, in D.C. and we were meeting with several different legislators. And we were talking about how basically unfair it is that the flexible spending accounts are tied to the number of employees or the number of employees in a family. So, for instance, Pam, in the current situation, a family of, say, five with one working parent, a spouse, and three children – can he like $2,500? Actually, and I say that the IRS revised it up for cost of living. It's actually $2,550 Oh, this that year. makes a big difference. Big difference, yes. right. Um, so it makes no difference if you're a single working parent in a family of five like that. Regardless of the number of, of, of children you have, you can elect $2,500 if, if you have two children, five children, or ten children. Okay. Transposed with the fact that if you are in a family of two working Adults with no children, you can elect five thousand, or actually five thousand one hundred now, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and some of our members pointed that out to a couple of members of Congress, and they agreed. And we also said, look, this this also doesn't make any sense for a single working mother or a single working father who is trying to afford medical care. They can only elect twenty five hundred dollars. Why don't we tie it somehow to the number of dependents who are in a family, so that maybe we can have some mechanism to accommodate larger families or families in which there can only be one working parent. So what will the, what are the provisions of this bill then? So that will, what exactly will happen as proposed? The bill is going to do th two things. If passed in its current state, it's going to raise number one, the cap to $5,000 period. Then, across the board. Across the board. So it's going to go back to that $5,000 that most employers arbitrarily put, but it's going to make that the, the federal uh, ceiling. So employers could still elect less than that, and that's important to know going forward. But the maximum is allowable is $5,000. But if you have more than two dependents, as defined by the IRS and your family, you can elect an additional $500 per dependent. So that if you have a family of, say, three or four or five, you can get that extra $500 per child. The other thing that it does is it eliminates the, the, the rollover effect. So right now, flexible spending accounts, if you don't use it, you lose it. 
there are a couple of new provisions that they put in place. Like you can, employers can either choose one of two options. You can say, as an employer, you're going to allow your employees to use the funds that they elected for the previous year until March 15th, or you can allow them to roll over up to $500. One or use, the other. One or the other. And you can allow them to roll over $500 for use for the entire next year. Well, our point was why it doesn't make much sense to have a use it or lose it provision. So let's eliminate that while we're at it. So if you have anticipated medical expenses, families can take it and put $5,000 or up to however much the, the maximum cap would be, depending upon their number of dependents, and whatever you don't use, you can roll it over to the next year and use it as a sort of a medical savings account. You're not drawing interest on it, but you're still able to roll it over so that if there are anticipated or unanticipated medical expenses the following year, you don't use it. You don't lose it. You you can still use it. So it builds up as a nice asset to to. Over it builds the years. up as a nice asset over the years, and it, it I think it's it you know as as medical expenses, regardless of the changes in the medical industry since the Affordable Care Act took place, I think we can we all see the headlines that healthcare premiums are still going up, that deductibles are going up, and these kind of savings accounts, the flexible spending account, can help blunt really large medical bills that come in with folks who may be even using the, or maybe even selecting the bare minimum healthcare uh, choices off of the federal or state exchanges, depending on where they live. They might, they might be looking at higher deductibles. Maybe they may look at deductibles that, that are going to cripple their finances or prevent them from buying a car or a house or, or getting orthodontic or getting orthodontic treatment or basic dental treatment even. And this allows them to bank that money over and to spend it on health care where it needs to be. Well, it sounds like a great idea. And I, I, I say hooray for the members who brought that to everyone's attention. So we got this going in, into the Congress. Kevin, is there anything that, that AAO members can do on a local level to encourage uh, more employers to offer FSAs? There are a number of things, Pam, that, that orthodontists and AAO members can do on a local level, and we're going to be active in the near future letting them know exactly what to do and even providing some, some information. I think there are two things that are important. Under the current scheme, I think it's important for AAO members to convey to patients the parents of, of minor patients too, the importance of FSAs, ask if their employers use the FSAs, make sure that they're aware that they can use them for orthodontic treatment. I think a lot of patients may not know that. I think it's important to go to send talking points, to, to talk to local employers and ask them if they use FSAs, maybe even work with those local employers to raise awareness in their own among their own employee base that those flexible spending accounts are a smart way to put away money, it, it's something that that employees can put away every other or every paycheck, and is it doesn't it doesn't add up to a lot per paycheck. But at the end of the year, mm-hmm. it is it is it, it can add up to right now twenty five fifty per per worker, and I think almost everybody in America can use twenty two thousand five hundred and fifty dollars in you know either you know dental dental offices, orthodontic offices, uh, deductibles, copays for pharmaceuticals, any right. number of things, even even some over the counter medications are eligible for FSA reimbursement. So, it's an important thing for I think any employer to offer as a as a member as a, as an employee benefit. On the other hand, there is the question of what AO members can do to help the AO lobby for passage of the raise yes. bill. Please. And that is going to be something that you're going to be hearing a lot as an AO member about over the next couple months as this is debated in Congress. I think 
there's going to be a multi-pronged approach. Times have changed. You know, Pam, five, six years ago, the the, the, the typical way that associations went about lobbying members of Congress were sort of like a draft letter that we would ask people to send to, to members of Congress. Times have changed since then. I think it's important to connect with your member of Congress at the local district level, show up at town halls, tweet, send them Facebook messages. We'll provide the information about what the bill number is, what, what the specifics are, who the co-sponsors are, what the, the talking points and why this is important for the business. I think it's important for AO members to speak in their own voice and talk about in their own experience about how the reduction in the FSA has affected their business, how it's affected their ability to provide affordable care for more families, how it's affected their ability to be profitable and employ well-paid positions within the, within the district of their member of Congress. Again, I, I think this is going to have broad bipartisan support because it is simply something that, that, that makes sense on so many different levels. And another question is that I think some people might ask is, well, who is going to be opposed to this? Because almost any bill that comes up in Congress, there's an opposing lobby. I think there are probably two potential sectors from which opposition could come to this bill. One would be the Obama administration. And I don't anticipate that to change because this what the, the end result will be is a little bit less in tax collection. Because again, I go back to what I said earlier in the last segment, we were talking about this being sort of a stealth tax. It is a stealth tax because these are tax-deductible accounts. And anytime you reduce the amount that you can put away before taxes, you're increasing the overall tax revenue to the government. Now, we could argue about the relative benefit of this tax benefit and what the government is paying for many other things that we could all probably agree are less essential than helping families afford good health care. But nonetheless, that's going to be an opposition. Another potential opposition is corporations who may be under the misunderstanding that they would have to provide this benefit. And that has never been the case with flexible spending accounts, and it won't be the case moving forward if this bill passes. If an employer wants to limit its employees in their deductibility and FSAs, they can. They don't have to go with these limits. They can always artificially lower them. And I say artificially, not to be prejudicial, but just to say that the employers can look at this as a potential benefit that they can offer, but they don't have to if, at the end of the day, they don't believe they can afford it. So this has been a busy uh, busy time in Congress. Is, are there other things on the AAO's uh, legislative agenda? We're looking at two other things, Pam. I think, again, the FSA bill is going to be the, 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 big, the big thing in the room that we're going to be lobbying for and spending most of our time and attention working towards. The other issue, like I mentioned previously, the medical device tax, that is something that has almost always had bipartisan support to repeal. And the reason that it has had bipartisan support to support to repeal is that there are quite a few big medical manufacturers, not just in orthodontics, but across the medical industry period, based in what we would call blue states. And those companies have been aggressively lobbying their members of Congress. Uh, Al Franken is one of them. A couple of other prominent Democratic United States senators have have said that they would uh, that they would support repeal of the medical device tax or at least lessening it. And again, it's a 2.3% tax, and it's meant to apply to any medical device. The, the rule of thumb, Pam, is that the 2.3 medical device tax applies to almost any medical device that you can't get at a CVS or a Walgreens. Okay. So heart stents, orthodontic appliances, things that doctors typically prescribe or are sold directly to doctors to use in the end – for the end use of the patient. And the reasoning for that is that it helps pay for the subsidies in the Affordable Care Act and those people who are getting subsidies through the exchanges. 
where that reasoning falters when it comes to orthodontics is this. If there are a large number of people anticipated, theoretically, getting insurance through the exchanges, you have, theoretically, again, an influx of patients who are able to, through insurance, afford heart stents or knee replacements or hip replacements. It makes sense on the 2.3% to charge on those on those devices. However, and here's the key, the Affordable Care Act does not cover orthodontics, at least the vast majority of orthodontics. We know it might cover some medically necessary orthodontics, but at the same time, it doesn't cover all orthodontics. So, But the, the, the device tax covers all orthodontic appliances. So that is something that we have joined and have led several different coalitions. The ADA included the uh, maxillofacial surgeons, most other groups, most other, most other dental groups that are in, in private business, and as well as the American Medical Association we joined with, American Academy of Pediatric uh, Specialists. We, we have worked with them to try to get the medical device tax repealed. Again, the biggest opposition to that is the current administration. The other issue, Pam, that we're looking at and we're, we've been monitoring for some time is the issue of comprehensive tax reform. And I think that's something, in fairness, that no professional political watcher really anticipates anything concrete moving forward until the next president is sworn in in January of 2017. But nonetheless, I think a lot of the framework for tax reform is going to be debated over the next year and a half to two years. And I think a lot of that framework will possibly remain intact rolling over into the next president. The, the way the, the way that the, the current political environment is right now, I just don't think that it, it is going to foster any kind of tax reform like what they're talking about. And there are any number of different proposals from, from the, sort of the fringe, so to speak, which would be to eliminate the federal income tax altogether and go to a value-added tax or a consumption tax. To other uh, more conservative approaches, and I don't use that word in a political sense, but less less ambitious proposals, I suppose, which would eliminate a lot of tax breaks and move the tax codes around a little bit, kind of reminiscent of what the uh, Clinton administration did in the mid-90s. Now, what's important in what the AEO will be looking at is making sure that small business orthodontists are looked after in this tax code, that we make sure that Proposals are on the table and discussed and respected that will help small businesses across the board, especially our members, to keep the cost down and more affordable and more accessible to patients and make it cheaper to buy equipment, for instance, to make sure that the best technology is always used in these pra- in our practices, in members' practices, and to provide incentives to hire good help because we know that the average orthodontist employs a number of well-paid positions. And any time that the, the Social Security tax goes up, any time that it may, there are regulations, uh, tax regulations or otherwise, that make it more uh, less affordable to hire people and to buy new equipment, you know, the old saying is, you, whatever you tax, you get less of. And if you tax employment and if you tax technology, you're going to get less of that. And we're going to be active in Congress over the next year and a half, making sure that people know in Congress that the best way to for orthodontists to provide low-cost treatment to the most people possible and the most high-quality treatment is to make technology and hiring good folks cheaper. And that's Kevin Dillard, the AAO's general counsel, speaking about the new FSA bill before Congress. 
Kevin and I will be joined shortly by Kevin O'Neill, who is the AAO's Legislative Counsel and Partner at Squire Patent Boggs in Washington, D.C. We'll be back after the break. This is Pam Paladin. What makes me smile? Cheeseburgers make me smile. My kids make me smile. And I like to smile, thanks to my orthodontist. My dentist said go to a specialist. Orthodontists have the training. The experience. And the treatment options, like clear aligners and braces. For my best smile. Now, my smile makes me smile. For your best smile, find an AAO orthodontist at mylifemysmile.org. The American Association of Orthodontists. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed hearing the AAO's radio commercial. AAO members can download radio commercials and a wide array of other advertising and marketing materials. Use them to promote yourself and your practice. Visit aaoinfo.org and click on the Practice Management section. This is Pam Paladin back with Kevin Dillard, the AAO's General Counsel, with some good news that can have a positive effect on the AAO members' practices and many of the patients they serve. We're joined now via Skype by Kevin O'Neill, the AAO's Legislative Counsel and Partner at Squire Patent Boggs in Washington, D.C. Kevin has been the AAO's lobbyist for 10 years. Kevin, welcome to our podcast. Pam, it's a, a pleasure to be with you on the show. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Kevin, tell us, what's the likelihood of the Ray's bill passing? Well, uh, Pam, it's a great question, and I want to start by backing up a little. I know you already covered the fact that COGA uh, was fairly involved in this, but I, I really want to commend uh, those folks uh, because last summer they had some very important conversations that led to the pathway for a couple of members of Congress to take COGA up on its offer to solve this important problem and offer the legislation that we're talking about here today, uh, the RAISE Act. I think it's probably no surprise to uh, uh, orthodontists around the country as they monitor uh, news from Washington that progress with RAISE will probably be, be linked to what the Congress chooses to do with uh, fundamental health care reform uh, over the next few months. As we talk uh, n- next week in Congress, I'm, not, I'm sorry, not in Congress. The Supreme Court will hear, hear King versus Burwell, which is a case that could, uh, in many ways, sweep away some important foundations of the Affordable Care Act and require some sort of congressional response. Uh, we anticipate that the Supreme Court would uh, hear King versus Burwell uh, next week and make a decision in the last week of June, and that a congressional response might come thereafter. Uh, and Rays will be caught up in those discussions about how do you improve uh, the Affordable Care Act. And those discussions will go on this spring, but they'll probably pick up a lot this summer once we know what the Supreme Court decides in that case, because then Congress will make a response about how to improve the system overall. Uh, We anticipate a big bill coming out at that time, and we would hope to get the Rays Act attached to that bigger bill. Kevin, what, what do you think the chances are of this bill passing exactly as it is, or if it's amended, how is it going to be amended, or the most likely areas that you think it'll be amended? Well, Kevin, I know uh, you covered the three elements of this bill, and it's very difficult to predict what happens in the legislative process. Obviously, we start out at, at what the desired state is, and we may have to reach some sort of accommodation over time to get this included. I think the biggest concern will come with what the potential cost to the Treasury is of some of these provisions. Obviously, when you're allowing larger families to uh, 
increase their uh, withholding here by $500 for an extra dependent. Uh, that's going to reduce the uh, the tax revenue to the federal government. Same with uh, increasing the cap uh, from $2,500 to $5,000. Uh, that's going to have a cost. And uh, we may get some pushback on the overall cost when things are said and done, in which case we may have to compromise uh, on those levels. What's not clear to us is how you measure the cost of the, the rollover provision, the ability for me to build up a balance in uh, that FSA over time. And does that really have a meaningful cost uh, to the federal government? We'd argue that it won't because uh, you know, the year in which I, I uh, saved it, uh, the government's already uh, lost that benefit. I'm not going to be saving more. The next year, it's just going to be, be held there. Uh, we're going to argue that that's got some long-term economic benefits because when it gets spent, it's going to get spent on the kind of major medical needs like orthodontia or other things uh, that wouldn't otherwise be covered. It's going to, uh, I think, going to create some uh, dynamic new economic activity that we think would have uh, a net plus. So I don't know if that that answers your question. I mean, the, the Ways and Means Committee and the Finance Committee and the Senate, Ways and Means in the House, that, the, that will be where these bills are considered. Typically, things like the RAISE Act, they don't pass as standalone bills. They generally have to be bundled together in larger legislative packages. And what we have to do is demonstrate that this sort of uh, common sense approach to allowing consumers to take uh, broader responsibility for their major healthcare decisions is in the best interest of the United States. When we do that, then I think uh, it becomes a compelling addition to broader legislation in the healthcare arena. Kevin, thanks for those insights. One last question for you, Kevin, is what, in your opinion, is the best way for AAO members to communicate with their members of Congress? Is it, these days, is it social media? <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm a little worried about what you might say on social media, Pam, uh, to members of Congress. That doesn't always uh, come across in the best way. I'll say this. Uh, we are now in a point where member engagement is very important. Uh, the leadership of the AAO uh, through COGA and through the board and through the staff has done their job of getting this issue from uh, the frontline providers to the halls of Congress. It's been heard. A bill is being introduced. And now it's up to us. Uh, to rally the troops and get enough support to make the case to, to get it to passage. Uh, I think every member of AAO probably knows what their best way is to reach out to their member of Congress. I encourage you at the very least to call your member of Congress and your senators and talk to the healthcare staffer or the staffer who handles small business issues and uh, explain to them you'd like to see uh, their boss get on the RAISE Act. For those members who are, and by get on, I mean become a co-sponsor, show their visible support for it. Uh, for those AEO members who have a direct relationship with a member of Congress, a senator or a representative, certainly encourage you in your next conversation to bring this up and to ask for their support. Uh, the AEO has done a wonderful job of supporting so many champions uh, in the House and Senate, and we've rarely gone to them and said, this is something that we really need for uh, the good of our patients. And this is an outstanding example of the AO doing something that's in the best interest of our patients. And I encourage everyone, find a few minutes in the month, month of March to reach out to your representatives and senators, ask them to become a co-sponsor of the RAISE Act, ask them to do what's necessary to uh, help bring this common sense measure to the president's desk for signature. Kevin O'Neill from Squire Patton Boggs in Washington, D.C., AAO's Legislative Council. Thank you very much for joining us on today's podcast. Thank you. 
And that's a wrap for our first episode of the AAO's The Business of Orthodontics podcast. Thanks to Kevin Dillard, too, the AAO's general counsel, for joining us this afternoon. Watch for updates in your email in the e-bulletin or questions. Send them to info at aaortho.org or call 800-424-2841. Thanks for listening. This is Pam Paladin.